Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it sounds like Canada is in no hurry to drop its mask mandate for airplanes, trains, and other federally regulated public transportation. That's what officials said this week, despite the fact that a similar rule came to an end in the United States this week. That's because a federal judge in Florida struck down a Biden administration rule requiring that masks be worn in the United States on transportation options like planes and trains. Let's talk more about that. What is going on down on the stage? Reggie Giacchini joins us now, our Global News Washington correspondent. Hello, Reggie. Good morning. So this came, like, I've seen all the videos of people, like, mid-flight, pilots making announcements and all of that. This sounds like it was quite a celebrated decision down in the States. Uh, I mean, it was for uh, a segment of the population who has been tired of wearing masks. It also was for uh, a large majority of the Republican uh, population in Congress. But at the same time, it was met with criticism from people who were on planes and on trains where this came down with kind of no notice at all. So there were people that boarded these these, you know, vehicles or these these modes of transportation thinking they would be in a quote unquote safer environment only to find themselves now sitting beside people who might not be masked. Worth pointing out to you, Simi. There is no testing requirement to get on a plane in the U.S., so it really could be unclear, uh, you know, the, the 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 status of the person who is sitting next to you. So it's been met with criticism. It's being met with a potential political fight here from the Department of Justice, but it really has thrown the country for a loop. What is the appeal process here? Like, has that been determined yet if the Biden administration will appeal? It was originally said that they wouldn't appeal. And then late last night, uh, Department of Justice said that they will appeal if the CDC gives them the advice to do so. CDC originally said, look, we had this extension that was in place for masks that was going to run until May 3rd to let us know uh, how the BA2 subvariant is spreading and whether or not it's creating an increased caseload or an increased hospitalization count. Uh, so the Department of Justice says, look, CDC, at the end of what would have been the May 3rd count anyways, let us know if cases are getting you know, more uh, prevalent around the U.S. And if they are, then we will file an appeal because whatever the outcome of this appeal is, if it goes against the uh, the administration, it could make it more difficult to put a mask mandate in place if there's another pandemic. So there's a lot kind of at stake here. Right. OK, so that sounds like it's changing on a day to day basis. So what is the option then for people who who still want to wear masks? So it's it's now optional and it is now freedom. Uh, the problem is, is this country has really seen politics and the pandemic run face to face and head first into each other from the very beginning. And there are people that are still opting to wear a mask that are facing kind of vocal criticism from people who say that it's government depression or that they don't need to be wearing that mask anymore. So you have, a, you know, a segment of the population trying to say, look, it's freedom of choice. But at the same time, there's a segment of the population saying, well, look, we're telling you not to wear a mask. So try not wearing one. It really is throwing the country uh, you know, in a bit of a circle here, given the fact that cases are on the rise around the U.S., but also it's an uneven rollout. Some transit systems like New York require masks still. D.C.'s transit system, they're optional. OK, and what are what is the COVID situation like in the United States right now? 
So the numbers are creeping back up. Uh, the death, the daily death count in the U.S. is somewhere between 450 and 500. So, you know, on the approach to 3,000 people are dying every single week. The case counts that are reported uh, are around 30,000 new cases a day, likely undercounted because of the prevalence of at-home testing. So you, you're seeing, you know, 30,000 cases every single day, clusters of them showing up in the Northeast. But Johns Hopkins University now feels, and the Mayo Clinic feel, that the numbers are going to jump across the Midwest and through the West over over the next two weeks. So while Canada sits in a sixth wave, this next wave could potentially be growing in the United States, raising those questions again of why are we pulling masks back so quickly? And not only that, I mean, what is the vaccination rate like in the States? So the vaccine rate has kind of struggled over the last several months. It's over 80% for people who are fully vaccinated, but the number of people who have uh, received boosters, either their first shot or their second shot, uh, is less than half of that, if not more than less than half of, of the total number of people vaccinated. Uh, and, and Congress is running out of money to be able to deal with this going forward. There was a big pullback on funding for COVID uh, funding in the future. So, you know, the, the administration is trying to work as quickly as it can to get the message out out there that you know vaccines are still available we still need to get this this population uh protected against a virus where variants are are, are kind of throwing us right now uh, and we've got to try and stay two steps ahead but when you're seeing these kinds of political pushes for you know republican judges to make the legal decision not the public health decision it creates more confusion right okay and so there's also no there's no vaccine mandate to travel is there i know in canada you have to show that you're fully vaccinated that's not the case in the states it's not the case in the states you do not need to have a vaccine to uh to board a domestic flight so you won't have to be vaccinated you won't have to wear your mask which creates more concern in public health situations and while we're seeing the mask mandate be pulled back in the u.s we're not seeing the the uh, pre-departure testing requirement be pulled back for international travelers coming into the U.S. So it's creating that additional level of confusion that Americans don't need to test. International people do need to test. But if you're an American and abroad trying to come home, you also then need to test. So it's an uneven rollout of how these mandates are playing out, uneven across the U.S. and uneven with how things operate in Canada as well. Okay. And so it sounds like, Reggie, from what you're saying as well, that it could change. And like the Biden administration could change their mind any time now about what they're going to do about this ruling. Yeah, look, pressure from from politicians is is mounting uh, to try and get all mandates removed. But here's the important part to remember. This was a Republican push to end this mask mandate, at, saying that the CDC doesn't have broad authority to be issuing these kinds of, uh, of mandates. At the same time, Republicans are saying, ooh, CDC, you have that Title 42 that's stopping immigration from coming across the southern border because of a public health mandate. That's going away. We need you to put that back in place. So Republicans are really trying to stretch the boundaries of what they think the CDC could and should do based on their political interests. The Biden administration understands that in an election year, whatever it decides to do when it comes to this pandemic could also have a political cost. So this, again, is politics and the pandemic trying to battle it out for which one is going to be more superior. All right. Once again, thanks for your time, Reggie. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Lots of discussion about travel then, given those big changes in the United States. This is Mornings with Simi. 
It feels like we have been talking about a critical nursing shortage in this province for years, and the pandemic really, I think, heightened it, made us even more aware of that. Well, the announcement came yesterday that the province has decided to overhaul the process by which they accredit internationally trained nurses. So what does this all mean? Well, joining us now to talk about that is Cynthia Johansson, Registrar and Chief Executive Officer of the BC College of Nurses and Midwives. Cynthia, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for inviting me. So how long has this been in the works? Actually, um, it's been in the works for some time. Um, I think uh, as a regulator uh, that oversees nursing practice, we've been working for, you know, continuously to look at ways that we can improve the way that we manage uh, the the application process for, for anyone that wants to be a nurse in British Columbia. So what will this change mean? What does it do? This change, as I said yesterday, this change, this is a game changer, actually. Um, one of the challenges for internationally educated nurses is navigating the Canadian uh, process for applying to be a nurse. There are nursing regulators in every province um, and trying to figure out, you know, am I more like a registered nurse or more like a practical nurse? And then applying based on that is, is really challenging for internationals coming, international uh, applicants coming from other c- countries. So I think this change helps streamline that process in British Columbia. One application for every nurse applicant. It's, it's a big change. So that's the first piece. Uh, and the second piece is around how we review their competencies and their credential and really looking at providing them the opportunity to, to meet those requirements, to do that work concurrently. So it happens kind of all at the same time rather than in a staged uh, approach, which is how it has been happening over the past few years. Right. So, Cynthia, I have to ask, what took us so long to do this then? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, I'm, one of the great things that's happened recently in British Columbia is uh, we amalgamated or merged uh, the nursing regulators. Uh, three years ago, there were three different nursing colleges that oversaw nursing professionals in this province. Um, so, you know, an international applicant would have to figure out do I fill in three forms and pay three fees or one and take a gamble and hope that I get accredited and registered with that particular college? Uh, in 2018, the three colleges were merged into one, and we have been working away as a new entity to streamline all of our processes and make it easier for anyone trying to navigate to be a nurse uh, in Canada uh, and in British Columbia. So, Cynthia, how could this potentially impact the numbers moving forward? Well, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if our applicant numbers go up. Um, I'm, I'm really hopeful. I believe strongly that the work that we are doing will enable people to go through the process much faster. And right now, uh, you know, applicants have been struggling um, in, in a very slow process. And, and there's lots of reasons why some folks have a slow process. Sometimes it's difficult to get documents from their country of origin. Um, and that's, that's usually mostly out of their control, uh, never mind the regulators. Um, but in places, in times when it is, you know, easy for them to get information and easy for them to to come to the regulator with all of their information in hand, uh, you know, I, I believe strongly we will reduce the processing time by months 
with this change. So where can we see that having the biggest impact on Cynthia's? Is are there particular areas of nursing that you think might benefit from this the most? No, I think it'll be I think it'll be across the board where we'll see benefit. Um, or I anticipate we will have more applications going through and going through to find work in the right nursing role for them at the time of application. I think, as I mentioned earlier, so often um, applicants are trying to guess, am I most like a registered nurse or am I most like a practical nurse? Um, and they pay the application fee and they go through the process. And then at the end of it, they're, they're actually not close to what that might be. This streamlining process will give them an answer no matter how how or what they think they're applying to be in terms of nursing. We want to get them to the right role as soon as possible so they can get into the health sector right. as soon as possible. So has any other province done this? No, but we are engaged uh, in sharing um, this work with other provinces. So, and in particular, um, our colleagues in Alberta and uh, our nursing regulator colleagues in Alberta and in New Brunswick are quite engaged with us in learning from this experience and, and actually working to see if they can implement similar changes in their province at the same time. Right. So, does it something that you think will attract people here then? I believe so. Yep, that's. I think that's the, the the hope, the wish, the desire. So hopefully that will be the outcome. So it just seems like before we had a lot of bureaucratic red tape. So what was the impetus for merging all the colleges together? Like, how did that all happen? Um, I think a realization that the public interest isn't really being served when you have that level of confusion. So, you know, patients who were trying to make complaints uh, about nursing practice were struggling to figure out which college do I call to make the complaint. Um, They would have to visit three different websites. Um, Employers would have to navigate three different sets of standards for their employees, their nursing employees, um, because the colleges had slightly different standards for their their professionals that they oversaw. Um, Three different registers to check when you were... Uh, employing somebody to see if they might be registered uh, dually, so they might have both an LPN and an RN designation. Just and and getting to that point where people could see, you know, merger is it, actually going to be in the public interest. That took some time, um, but we got there, and um, and ministry supported it with legislative change, which was huge. Uh, and legislation always takes some time to draft and get introduced into the House. Um, and, and I think you've seen, you know, the minister uh, and, uh, and MLAs from both the Greens and the Liberals did do a steering committee to look at modernizing the Health Professions Act. And they've, they've identified some more changes to come. So, you know, it's an exciting time for regulation um, because really positive changes are coming. Okay, so that's good to know. How quickly will this take effect, by the way? Um, the, the streamlined process for competency assessment, which um, it will start in May, so very soon, in the next few weeks. And anybody who, any applicant who's in process right now with the college will get a reach out from the college, just advising them of the change and making sure that they're aware of the opportunity to, to shift how they get assessed, which is great. And then in terms of the, the, the bigger change, the um, application process, that's going to shift over the summer and we hope to launch it in early September. All right, Cynthia, thank you so much for your time. Anytime. It's really lovely to talk to you this morning. 
This is Mornings with Simi. How do you feel about the practice of blind bidding in real estate? Many people and observers feel like this has unnecessarily driven up prices in a lot of cases. And the federal government has decided, well, they're going to take this on. The latest federal budget actually proposed to end the practice of blind bidding. And that's where, you know, multiple buyers, competing buyers end up in a multiple bid situation, but you don't know what the other person is offering. It's when a real estate agent might say, we are accepting offers Tuesday at five o'clock. So everybody has to get their offers in by Tuesday at five o'clock. So you bid not knowing anything about what somebody else might be bidding, you may end up overpaying for something by hundreds of thousands of dollars. Federal budget, federal budget said they want to take this on. Canadian real estate industry, not too happy about that. Let's talk a little more about this. Adil Danani joins us now, founder and principal of Danani Group Real Estate Advisors. Good morning, Adil. Good morning, Simi. What nice are, to be on the show again. Well, thanks for being here. What are you hearing about this from the real estate industry? So I think that, um, you know, I think with the, with the recent uh, federal budget, you know, we obviously applaud um, the initiatives. I mean, they put forward $10 billion in housing initiatives. So they're obviously listening to us carefully in terms of the fact that we need to, you know, make certain reform, uh, reforms to the industry. We need to, you know, streamline certain processes in terms of bringing on more supply. I think in terms of this whole notion of blind bidding, um, I agree there's, there needs to be some reform and some clarity on the process, like specifically here in Vancouver, British Columbia, when, you know, like you, know, like you noted in your, in your introduction, you know, an agent could outline a certain process for offers, you know, let's say offers next week on a certain property on Tuesday at a, at a certain time. And, um, and they communicated to us, let's say I was representing the buyer in a particular transaction. We have no way of verifying how many offers are actually on the table. So one, we we're, we don't know the price that's going to be offered by other groups, and two, we don't know if they're um, we don't know how many offers are in fact actually on the table. So I think to you know moving forward, if there were some transparency, some clarity to that process, I think that would be very good. The whole idea of um, you know removing the uh, the notion of blind bidding. I mean that's an inter- that's an interesting one because you know if you look at examples around the world, um, I think Sweden's a prime example. It's a country that doesn't allow blind bidding. But during the pandemic, prices rose faster than in Canada. Um, Same with New Zealand and Australia. They have more of an auction process, which is what I would think would be probably, um, you know, an interesting structure. But prices also rose quite heavily there. And and there there was full transparency on what the other uh, bidders were, were offering. Right. But why not just, you know, it used to be that if you saw a house, you liked it, you put in an offer. And now quite often you'll get told, no, well, we're not accepting offers yet. Or like, why can't it just be that you make an offer whenever that, like, that house goes up for sale, you can make an offer? Yeah. So we're, we're moving in that direction. Like every decade we get um, a window of about, it seems this way, at least over the last 20 years, I've been practicing for 16 years. You know, we had this run up in between 2015 and 2017, an overheated, over-elevated market where prices were rising faster than people could keep up with. Um, and you see these types of issues arise and come to the forefront. Fast forward to where we are now, you know, we've had a, a you know, pandemic-driven market again, about 24 months of overheated activity. So I don't know if you can necessarily introduce such strong reform over, you know, considering it's, you know, it's, it's a very isolated two-year period. The market is now settling down 
there are now, um, you know, properties coming to market where you can make offers on um, without offer dates. And I think the market is sorting itself out. And I think that's one thing the industry or the government should also look at when they're putting forward new policy that can be just specific to the two years. Right. It's got to be a broad-based policy. Now, I've heard this from a couple of real estate agents anecdotally as well, that the market seems to be slowing down. What do you attribute that to? So I think there's a confluence of factors that are leading to this recent market kind of adjustment or, or stabilization. Number one, you've got uh, rising interest rates, right? That's um, the Bank of Canada just moved their variable rates by 50 basis points um, last week. You've got five-year fixed money um, or interest rates also on the rise. So if you have variable rates rising, you have fixed rates rising, that is going to take some gas out of the market. That's the first thing. Secondly, we are starting to see more inventory come on the market. This is a good thing. This should be celebrated by the industry. It should be celebrated by buyers. I mean, we're not going to see as much upward pressure on prices for sellers, but sellers have had it really good for the last two years. Yes, they have. For things to adjust and stabilize. This is healthy and this is normal. We need more of a normal market. We do, but I don't know if we know anymore what a normal market is, Adil. <laughs> you know, um, I, I think that's a very you know astute observation. I mean, what is normal in, 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 the, in the Canadian real estate market? I mean, in Vancouver especially, now I think normal would mean between three and four months of inventory. We were sitting on less than 30 days of inventory during the pandemic. You know, something would get listed, it would get sold, there'd be multiple buyers for it. But now buyers are slowly taking their time. They're getting a bit more of an opportunity to conduct due diligence. Um, um, and, you know, that's that's the whole notion uh, that the BC government's put forward in terms of the cooling off period. Right. So I'm very interested to see how this all plays out over the next few months. Yeah, me too. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Simi. That's Adil Danani, founder and principal of Danani Group Real Estate Advisors. We're talking about the issue of blind bidding. Federal government has said they are going to move to, well, ban this practice or do something about this. And what do you think? Is that a good idea? I feel like it depends really on if you're the buyer or the seller. This is Mornings with Simi. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. How unaffordable is Vancouver? I mean, how unaffordable is it when you compare it to cities all over the world? We were just talking about real estate, so we know it's expensive here, but there has been a new survey done on that. And for more on it, we are joined by our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning again, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yes, we know it's very expensive here. It's uh, unaffordable, but Vancouver's been knocked from its second place in terms of global unaffordability for a city. And now we're in the third spot. I know that's no comfort to anybody. So the rankings are currently Hong Kong, number one for unaffordability, then Sydney in Australia, and then Vancouver. And I was so shocked to see uh, these like big cosmopolitan cities like New York uh, come in at only 73rd. And London at 79th How? in the U.S. Yeah, and the U.S. as a country was weirdly seen as the most affordable country with Pittsburgh, the city of Pittsburgh being the most affordable city. Edmonton was also up there. So, of course, uh, that's going to be a little bit surprising to people. So how is this determined? It's, they look at like a price to income 
ratio. It uses a median house price uh, that's divided by median household income. So that's why you're seeing those kinds of numbers. So somebody in New York might get paid a lot more um, and then therefore able to uh, afford their place of living. Whereas here in Vancouver, people might not be making that very much and expected to pay somehow for unaffordable housing. And this study shows that the situation really deteriorated during the pandemic. It was because and uh, because of the pandemic and by the pandemic. And when you know, when I think back to March 2020, I don't remember that being the case. Cause I saw I saw people, people in my community were uh trying to sell their homes, not some of them making a profit, some of them getting, you know, around what they expected. And then it was the next year, it was 2021 that I started to see these like major changes in house price. All of this like seems so unpredictable, but we're seeing some analysts say the market's now cooling slightly because of the interest rate increase, but supply remains low. And we're, we know that's not going to change overnight too. Right. It's interesting. I've talked to numerous real estate agents actually in the past week. They all have that sense that things are slowing down, the market is cooling. But the problem I still see with that, Raji, is that that's okay for you know, the market, but the sellers still have to be convinced of that because they're going to want to get the same price that their neighbors got a year ago. It's funny you say that right now, just right now, some family friends who are trying um, to downsize their home, they have a big, beautiful home, they've had it for 20 years, um, but uh, they do not want to sell it for what the realtor is suggesting. They want to sell it for way over because they've heard of other people doing the same. And I've been curious about what other places, what other countries have been doing to skirt this huge problem of unaffordability and like, why haven't, why hasn't the federal government been following their suit and seeing what they do? Why hasn't Vancouver been doing that? And this new survey results, uh, they actually look at Singapore, for example. And some critics say that the Canadian foreign buyer ban um, misses lessons that should have been learned from Singapore. So there, there have been many policies to curb housing costs on a bunch of fronts. And some people say that our restrictions on foreign buying are apparently full of loopholes, Simi. Um, in Singapore, they designed the system to actually deter foreign buying, and not just for appearances sake, but uh, to make a real difference. And if you live abroad and you want to buy in Singapore, you better really want it and really want to live there or else there's very severe penalties. And that's, you know, it's just not the case here. I was talking to a friend who uh, just bought a tiny townhouse in Whistler and she has no plans to stop renting in Vancouver, but she was just thinking about her children and the future and how is she going to provide for them in this unaffordable city that we have here in Vancouver. So she bought this tiny townhouse in Whistler from a German woman who doesn't live there never has. It was just an investment property for her. And the realtor told the new buyer, my friend, hey, um, listen, I help foreign buyers find a way without all the restrictions. So if you know anybody in the market, yeah, if you know anyone in the market, you know, give us a ring. We'll help you do it. There's lots of loopholes there. And they just said it so openly and transparently. Um, The new buyer was surprised to hear that that's how it works sometimes. 
oh, I don't think anybody in the market would be surprised to hear that. I think sometimes the rest of us, though, uh, are so we're so naive about that kind of stuff, right? Because we like to hear that, oh, yes, we're going to close this loophole, we're going to make these rules, but somehow it's still these prices continue to go up. I wonder if maybe it's the interest rate hikes that will have the biggest impact, though. It remains to be seen. We see it's having it's it is making a difference now. Um, I wonder how much more they'll go up for things to like change full stop. We'll see. It's just so unpredictable, uh, but it doesn't seem like a good time to be buying a house. It really doesn't. There's a lot. There is more on the market. Like I noticed even in my neighborhood, there's about four houses that have gone up for sale in the last, I would say, two weeks. Now, one of them sold very quickly, but it seemed to be the only one that was more, and I won't say like priced well, but realistically priced, let's say. But the, another one just went on for sale that was not as nice as that one that's asking for more. So I think it's going to come down to what you were talking about there with your friends, that the sellers are going to have to have a reality check to make this I change. I hope so. <laughs> it's about time, I think. I think there's um, so much, uh, you know, a lot of sellers were waiting to see how long they, you know, they could put a house up for, what are they going to get for it, waiting to see what the neighbors were doing. Um, I saw someone on my street sell a $700,000 townhouse, um, sell it in 2019 for $1 million after having acquired it, acquired it the year before. A, the current owner just listed it for one point six. What? <laughs> Isn't it? It's just, that seems it's, crazy. it seems absurd and we'll see. I'm so curious if they are going to sell it for that much or more. Simi. We'll I know. see. It's a gambling at this point. They're rolling the dice to see if they can find somebody. Right. And then they figure, well, we'll maybe lower the price afterwards, but they're just trying to see what they can get. Uh, Raji, thank you. Thanks. Simi. This is mornings with Simi. We've talked a lot about this problem that we're having with municipalities and how slowly some housing projects move through, if at all. Now, Housing Minister David Eby has been saying to municipalities that either they fix the problem or legislation from the province is going to fix that problem, trying to get things to move along a little faster. So the city of Victoria has actually done something. They've done what's being touted as a first-of-its-kind policy that they believe will streamline select affordable projects by pushing them past council in an effort to increase the amount of supply that's out there. So let's find out more about what they're doing. Joining us now is Lisa Helps, the Mayor of Victoria. Mayor Helps, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Good morning. Tell me a bit about this, what happened this week at Victoria Council. What was this big change about? Uh, Last Thursday night, after a very supportive public hearing with many community members speaking in support of this uh, new legislation, uh, we have delegated the approvals for all affordable housing and co-ops and anything government-owned to city staff as long as it meets with the official community plan and the design guidelines for any neighbourhood. So it takes it out of the political process, puts it in staff's hands, and is estimated to save a whole bunch of time and money for non-profit developers, government developers, and co-ops. So would you say it also then incentivizes those kinds of projects? Absolutely, without question. You know, we had a lot of uh, nonprofit housing providers and uh, Tom Armstrong from the BC Co-op Federation come and speak at our public hearing. And my my words to them as as a close uh, at the end of the hearing were, my hope is that this does uh, begin a nonprofit and co-op building boom in the city because it's making it quicker and it's uh, saving money. And and most importantly, and I think this piece is is maybe not getting uh, out there as much as it should, 
provincial and federal funding for housing often depends on land already being zoned. And there's a lot of uncertainty when it has to go through a zoning process and the federal or provincial funding may not come through. Uh, now, everything in the city essentially is zoned for affordable housing, and that creates uh, more funding to flow, hopefully, from the province and feds to those nonprofit developers who already have uh, zoned land for, for housing. Right. So the key here is, as the housing minister was also pointing out, is that you have to have a community plan in place that specifies, you know, what kind of things can be built where. What was that process like for Victoria? We uh, developed our official community plan, uh, adopted it in 2012, and interestingly, well, it's interesting to me, I was, uh, I was a citizen at the time that the community plan engagement began, and I was selected by the previous mayor to sit uh, on a citizen's advisory committee to help shape the engagement process for the plan. And so it was really, uh, even back then, citizen-led and citizen-determined, and we engaged people from across uh, across the city, uh, it, it was a three-year process uh, between starting engagement and adopting the plan, and so it was broad consultation, deep consultation, and what we heard, you know, back in, geez, I think it was 2009, 2010, uh, was that Victorians wanted a city that was organized around villages and transit corridors. That would be the land use design for uh, for our city, and so these new projects that will come forward from this legislative change will fit within Victorians' vision for what the city's future is going to look like. Right. So then why not expand it then? If, if these projects fit the community plan, why not say any project that fits the community plan? That is a beautiful question. Uh, this is one of Victoria's uh, first moves of three. So this was th- the biggest crisis in our city, and I, I would argue across the province, is affordable housing for working people, for people uh, coming out of homelessness. So we started with the most desperate need. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have two more big policy moves coming forward. One is to pre-zone uh, swaths of land along those transit corridors for rental zoning. So same, same thing, if a developer is building rental and if it's with the design guidelines, uh, rental can simply be built. And then the biggest, boldest move, which I hope the community and council will support, is to rezone the entire city to allow for uh, townhomes and houseplexes on what are currently uh, lots only zoned for single family. So we've got three big moves. This one is just number one. Okay, so that the duplex and townhome one, that's going to be a big one. Because I know the city of Vancouver experimented or they've tried a pilot program to do the duplex situation how do you think that's going to go over? Uh, it's a really, it's a really interesting conversation. Um, we've been again engaging with the community on this uh, proposal for at least eighteen months, um, and it, it's not so much duplexes because duplexes are still expensive. Uh, it, it's that every single family lot. Uh, will be allowed to have a fourplex or a sixplex, depending on the lot size. And then along block ends, um, townhomes will be allowed. Again, all of this as of right in zoning without any political process. When we started, uh, I think there was more resistance. But over the 18 months, we've seen the cost of single-family homes continuously climb. And it's, well, I think the average single-family home in Victoria right now is $1.3 million dollars. So anyone who wants their kids to be able to come for Sunday dinner, anyone who wants uh, employees to be able to work at their businesses, anyone wants home, homes to be attainable for, for working people in Victoria, even two working professionals, I think the conversation uh, has shifted, the, the, the environment has shifted in the last 18 months, and I think there will be more support than there would have been uh, for this, this move uh, to rezone the city for missing middle housing. Right, so if there's a huge demand for this, and you would anticipate a lot of take-up, how will you balance 
against that, then I'm sure at that some point people will might say, well, listen, change is happening too fast. Uh, what what the research shows from other places that have done this or other places that have rezoned, uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example in a moment, rezoned the city uh, for the entire city for uh, a new policy or new land use direction is it really, it, it takes decades for these things to be built out. Um, it's, you know, there are only a certain number of developers, there are only a certain number, it, it, will, it will balance itself out. I think that, um, but on the other hand, I hope that we do start to see change happening quickly because we are recruiting, this is just an example, we're recruiting a senior level position here at the city of Victoria and the person uh, had been offered a job and you know spent four weeks looking for housing. They, first they wanted to buy, well, they could find nothing to buy. Then they wanted to rent as an interim. They could find nothing to rent and they declined the position in the city because they couldn't find housing. So we need as many of those townhomes and house plexes as quickly as possible. All right, it's going to be interesting stuff happening in an election year. I mean, that's that's going to be some big changes. How will the people of Victoria be able to talk about this? Will they can they come to the meetings? Is there going to be room for that discussion? Uh, people in Victoria have been engaged and talking about this for the last 18 months with our staff. Uh, we will staff will be bringing forward a report to committee of the whole in the next few weeks, and then yes. Just like the affordable housing public hearing last Thursday, which was, I think we were all surprised. There was no one came and spoke against it. Uh, we will have a public hearing for missing middle housing and the rental pre-zoning uh, in the summer. Hopefully not too, uh, too late in the summer. As you say, it is an election year. Uh, and that will be the opportunity for the public to have one more say before we make a decision. Interesting stuff. All right. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. That's Lisa Helps, Mayor of Victoria. And as you can tell, big changes ahead in that city for how they deal with proposed housing projects.